Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 14, Checkmate Part 3 The odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I was in fact offered what now appears a moment of wholly free choice. In a sense, I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus, without words and, I think, almost without images. A fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay, or shutting something out, or, if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing, like corsets, or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being, there and then, given a free choice. I could open the door, or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor, or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door, or to take off the corslet, meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think that this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I have ever done. Necessity may not be the opposite of freedom, and perhaps a man is most free when, instead of producing motives, he could only say, I am what I do. Then came the repercussion on the imaginative level. I felt as if I were a man of snow, at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back. Drip, drip, and presently, trickle, trickle. I rather disliked the feeling. The fox had been dislodged from Hegelian wood and was now running in the open, with all the woe in the world, bedraggled and weary, hounds barely a field behind, and nearly everyone was now, one way or another, in the pack. Plato, Dante, MacDonald, Herbert, Barfield, Tolkien, Dyson, Joy itself. Everyone and everything had joined the other side. Even my own pupil Griffiths, now Dom Bede Griffiths, though not yet himself a believer, did his share. Once, when he and Barfield were lunching in my room, I happened to refer to philosophy as a subject. It wasn't a subject to Plato, said Barfield. It was a way. The quiet but fervent agreement of Griffiths and the quick glance of understanding between these two revealed to me my own frivolity. Enough had been thought and said and felt and imagined. It was about time that something should be done. For, of course, there had long been an ethic, theoretically, attached to my idealism. 
I thought the business of us finite and half-unreal souls was to multiply the consciousness of spirit by seeing the world from different positions while yet remaining qualitatively the same as spirit. To be tied to a particular time and place and set of circumstances. Yet there to will and think as spirit itself does. This was hard. For the very act whereby spirit projected souls, and a world gave those souls different and competitive interests, so that there was a temptation to selfishness. But I thought each of us had it in his power to discount the emotional perspective produced by his own particular selfhood, just as we discount the optical perspective produced by our position in space. To prefer my own happiness to my neighbor's was like thinking that the nearest telegraph post was really the largest. The way to recover and act upon this universal and objective vision was daily and hourly to remember our true nature. To reascend or return into that spirit which, in so far as we really were at all, we still were. Yes but I now felt I had better try to do it. I was freed at last, in MacDonald's words, something to be neither more nor less nor other than done. An attempt to complete virtue must be made. Really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. You must not do you must not even try to do the will of the Father unless you are prepared to know of the doctrine. All of my acts, desires, and thoughts were to be brought into harmony with universal spirit. For the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Of course, I could do nothing. I could not last out one hour without continual conscious recourse to what I called spirit. But the fine philosophical distinction between this and what ordinary people call prayer to God breaks down as soon as you start doing it in earnest. Idealism can be talked and even felt. It cannot be lived. It became patently absurd to go on thinking of spirit as either ignorant of or passive to my approaches. Even if my own philosophy were true, how could the initiative lie on my side, my own analogy, as I now first perceived, suggested the opposite. If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. Perhaps, even now, my absolute spirit still differed in some way from the god of religion. The real issue was not, or not yet, there. The real terror was that if you seriously believed in even such a god or spirit as I admitted, a wholly new situation developed. 
as the dry bones shook and came together in that dreadful valley of Ezekiel's, so now a philosophical theorem, cerebrally entertained, began to stir and heave and throw off its grave cloths and stood upright and became a living presence. I was to be allowed to play at philosophy no longer. It might, as I say, still be true that my spirit differed in some way from the god of popular religion. My adversary waved the point. It sank into utter unimportance. He would not argue about it. He only said, I am the Lord. I am that I am. I am. People who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. The best image of my predicament is the meeting of Mima and Wotan in the first act of Siegfried. Hier brauch ich nicht Speere nach Speher. Einsam will ich. I've no use for spies and snoopers. I would be private. Remember, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, mad wish, to call my soul my own. I had been far more anxious to avoid suffering than to achieve delight. I had always aimed at limited liabilities. The supernatural itself had been to me, first, an illicit dram, and then, as by a drunkard's reaction, nauseous. Even my recent attempts to live my philosophy had secretly, I now knew, been hedged round by all sorts of reservations. I had pretty well known that my ideal of virtue would never be allowed to lead me into anything intolerably painful. I would be reasonable. But now, what had been an ideal became a command. And what might not be expected of one? Doubtless, by definition, God was reason itself. But would he also be reasonable in that other, more comfortable sense? Not the slightest assurance on that score was offered me. Total surrender, the absolute leap in the dark, were demanded. The reality with which no treaty can be made was upon me. The demand was not even all or nothing. I think that stage had been passed on the bus top when I unbuckled my armor and the snowman started to melt. Now the demand was simply all. You must picture me alone in that room in Maudlin, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. 
the divine humility which will accept a convert, even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compelle intrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But, properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>